Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are currently in the middle of a season called Time, discussing time and history. This is part two. Just remind the listeners what this week's topic is about. Well, I would say the calendar, but that doesn't quite do it justice. It's uh, a mixture of older history and more recent events, disputes, and time itself. Um, Perhaps the way to define the Jewish calendar is a mix of astronomy, mathematics, and theology. It's a walk in the park. (laughs) Absolutely, that's right. Rambam's first Sefer, actually. And even though nowadays there is a way for everyone to um, name, identify the Jewish year, which is currently 5782, this was far from the case 2,000 years ago, and even 500 years ago, not due to ignorance, but to the fact that there was no standard system of dating, both non-Jewish or Jewish, that was in use for documents. Really, the first one adopted by the Jews, and I guess quite relevant to Hanukkah, is the Seleucid Greek calendar. Seleucid Empire was the one which the Hashmonaim fought against, and the Gomorrah refers to this system as Minyan Shtaris, the uh, counting or dating of documents, and it started, the new year for it, was the 3rd of April in um, 311 BCE, on the 1st of Nisanu, that was the month, which is obviously a copy of something that predates it from the Jewish calendar. And this date of uh, 311 BCE is after the period of Alexander the Great, but before the Hanukkah story itself, which is why the Book of Maccabees has dates in Seleucid years. But even after it comes into being, it's not adopted across the non-Jewish world, even across the Middle East itself. Obviously, 311 BCE, that predates Christianity and Islam by quite a while. So, obviously, those two calendars weren't in use either, I'm guessing. Yes, although even after those two do come into being, Jews continue to use Minyan Shtaris for documents, even for Ksubas, up until the 1500s in certain countries. I guess you could say that the, the dates and years most familiar, most used by Jews who were traders, would be the Muslim one, because most of the Jewish world lived under Muslim rule. They occupied vast areas from Spain to India and much of North Africa, and therefore many legal documents are dated according to the era of the Muslim Hijra, which was referred to in a number of ways, either uh, you know of the Hijra, of the Arabs, of the Goyim, And we also have documents that covered almost every base, almost every calendar date. There's one 
that records it as being the year 4994 since creation, 2546 since the Exodus, 1545 of the Seleucid era, 1166 since the destruction of the Second Temple, 950 years since the beginning of the Copts calendar, a Christian calendar, not the but a Christian calendar, and 630 year 630 of the Muslim calendar. So it's ironic that it has every year, except for the standard Julian calendar that we have today, because there were few Catholic Christians around in the Middle East. Well, so you're saying that the calendar that we're most familiar with, that we use every day, is the one that they use the very least? In, in the Middle East, but it has to be said that each calendar had its own problems uh, in terms of astronomy, in terms of religion, for instance, and this is quite an important one because it crosses over into Judaism. Early Christianity followed the lunar Jewish calendar, meaning that Easter, which is the main Christian date, it isn't Christmas, it never was, um, Easter is the time of the the crucifixion and resurrection, which is far more important than the date of his birth. So the date of Easter follows the Jewish calendar, meaning that because it was the first day of Pesach, they waited till the Jewish calendar had been pronounced in order to know uh, when they would be celebrating their festival. And they were doing this hundreds of years after the beginnings of Christianity. In fact, had they kept to the Jewish calendar, they wouldn't have had certain problems that followed. Why did they change? And when? So there, there are two parts to the change that occur within about a decade of each other. In the year 312 CE, um, the uh, religion of the Roman Empire, across the empire, officially became Christianity. You know, when people go to Rome, they stop at the Arch of Titus, but really they should be start stopping at the Arch of Constantine because it was he who changes the whole empire and changes life for the Jews for the next 1,500 years as a result. I think they go to see the menorah. Yes, right, <laughs> especially now that they've heard my talk on it. Yeah. Um, but what then happens is that within a decade, they now feel that it is embarrassing for them to be still following Judaism for their most important date. And they bring together a council of bishops in Nicaea, in Turkey. And the council determined two things. Firstly, one that's not specifically relevant to the calendar, but to the relationship of Christianity with Judaism. They decided that a a movement called Arianism, a philosophical uh, um, take on Christianity, becomes outlawed. And that removes many of the remaining links to Judaism, because without going into it in detail, essentially Christianity now becomes a pagan religion, which Christians don't really want to hear, but that is the truth of it. The Trinity, each part of the Trinity is God. And that means that a human being was God, which is why the Rambam, for instance, halachically tells us that Christianity is idolatrous, it's avodah it's shituf, it's, it's putting together elements of God. And once they have that belief, 
they then move to change from a lunar calendar to sort of calculating Easter based on the sun, more or less, and Easter changes, and they move to a solar calendar. And within 30 years of this council, they will have kicked all of the yeshivas out of Eretz Yisrael, and that way they don't get reminded by a Jewish presence of their modification to the calendar. And the Jews will now create a fixed calendar because all of the academies are now in Bovel. This is in the middle of the 4th century. So Judaism and Christianity change in this century. The Jews have a fixed lunar calendar. They don't have witnesses testifying about the new moon. And Christians have a solar calendar. But the solar, the Julian calendar, that Christians use for the next 1,200 years has a problem. They assumed that the solar year was 365 and a quarter days. And therefore, they put in a leap year once in four years, and everything should be great. Except that during the Middle Ages, it became apparent that the year was slightly too long. In fact, by 1582, there were a full 10 days out. And therefore, church holidays, such as Easter, didn't fall at the correct time. Because, as it is said, they prefer to be wrong with the goyim than right with the yidden. <laughs> Uh, that was one problem that they had in 1582, being 10, 11 days out. There was another. We assume that New Year's Day is the 1st of January, and therefore that Christmas was always the 25th of December. This could not be further from the truth, because parts of Europe were observing the first day of the new year on the 25th of March, which is nine months before December. That's when officially she became pregnant. And therefore, the last day of the year was March 24th. So you're saying that March 24th would be 1581, and then the following day, March 25th, would be 1582? Yep. In the middle of a month, the year would suddenly change. That's weird. Yes. So with these two problems, in 1582, Pope Gregory XIII, he decides to deal with this and authorizes a Gregorian calendar which suddenly skips 11 days and establishes January 1st as the first day of the new year. Now, Catholic countries, so you know, France, Italy, Poland, Lithuania, Spain, they're happy to change. Protestant countries weren't going to go for this. They were scared that this new calendar was a plot to, you know, to return them to the Catholic fold. Hmm. You, you, for instance, have in, in England, you have Queen Elizabeth I at the time. She was happy to change, but there was virulent opposition by Anglican bishops who, you know, they, they said the Pope is the personification of evil. <laughs> and therefore, England keeps the old calendar and keeps the first day of the new year at the 25th of March. And this creates an unbelievable mess in Europe because between 1582 and 1752, there were two calendars in use and, and it spills over to the colonies in America and other places and two different starts to the year. England only changes in 1752. Um, Sweden is even more insane, just to take one particular example, because they decided to make the 11-day adjustment gradually. You know, imagine living in a country where they uh, change from driving on the left to driving on the right gradually. <laughs> so for 40 years, the Swedish calendar was out of step with the Julian and the Gregorian calendar. Total mess. In Russia, the calendar was only accepted in 1918, after the October Revolution. And with this change, the sort of glorious October Revolution now actually takes place in November. 
So in Russia, only 100 years ago, they were celebrating New Year's in March. No, it was the 11 days that they did. Oh, the 11 accept. days, I see. Yeah. So this is all the Christian calendar. Beyond that, there were disputes over the Jewish calendar or questions about it. There was a famous question about the May Yeshiva, I recall, during the, yeah. the war in Shanghai. Yes. So obviously, you're going to have to deal at some stage with the dateline when Mir crossed to Japan itself, actually to Kobe, which was earlier than Shanghai, which is still on the Asian mainland. And as much as you have questions traveling east and west, there would be other questions about traveling north, where the sun occasionally does not set or rise for a full 24-hour period. So that we have to cover in its own right. My eldest son's bar mitzvah drosha was on east to west, and my second son was on north and south. Um, so, you know, clearly... I'm sure uh, everyone was very excited for your son's bar mitzvahs. I even gave handouts. They actually followed. Men, women, everybody actually paid attention. Uh, but maybe we'll bring them in to uh, give the drosha. It was in English. <laughs> um, but what I wanted to discuss today is a time when the Jewish people were split because of the calendar, a proper dispute. The Jewish year can have one of 14 different formats or lengths, depending on what day of the week Rosh Hashanah is, how long the months of Cheshvan and Kislev are, how many months in the year, fine. And in the late summer of 921 CE, so exactly 1100 years ago. The leader of the Jews in Eretz Yisrael, um, the rabbinic leaders at the time were known as Gaon, Goenim, um, Aaron ben Meir, he goes up Harazes in Mount of Olives during Sukkot and announces the calendar dates for the next two years, so 921 all the way through till basically 924. And in order to understand what he was uh, announcing or deciding, we need to understand that both the Babylonian calendars and the Eretz Yisrael calendars had a rule called Moilad Zokain. You don't need to glaze over. This is going to be very simple and short. <laughs> it means as follows. If the Moilad, the birth of the new moon, occurs after midday, then the beginning of the month is postponed to the next day. That is the cutoff point, midday of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Babylonian Jews in the academies of Surah and Pompadissa set the limit at literally and precisely midday, whereas the rabbis of Eretz Yisrael set it at about 30 minutes later. In more precise terms, 641 parts of the hour. The Jewish astronomical hour is divided into 1,080 fractions, not into 3,600 seconds, but whatever. So there is a, a sort of a, a debate over these 30, 35 minutes if the new moon is born during that period of time, which doesn't sound like a big deal. You know, what could really happen? What's going to really go wrong? How much can occur in that 35 minutes? Well, actually, everything Normally, this small difference wouldn't affect the calendar. But because the new moon of Tishri, Rosh Hashanah, in the year 923 occurred on a Shabbos at just after midday, according to the Babylonians, this is Molad Zokan, and therefore Rosh Hashanah can't be declared on Shabbos, but on the following day, Sunday. And then, to make things even more complicated, Sunday happens to be a day on which Rosh Hashanah cannot fall, 
which now means that Rosh Hashanah will happen two days later on Monday. But according to the Eretz Yisrael calendar calculations, 20 minutes past midday is fine. So Rosh Hashanah happens on Shabbos, and that was the announcement of Aaron ben Meir. And he says, you know, his calculations go back to the fixed calendar in the 4th century. And this has another outcome, because six months earlier, i.e. he was announcing Pesach in the year 922, he said it would happen on a Sunday. And according to the Go'enim in Iraq, Pesach would fall on Tuesday. Now, when these declarations become known in the academies and the Masifters of Bovel, so the Resh Gilusa, who is the secular head of the Jews in Bovel, sends a letter, he's a guy called David ben Zakai, and it is countersigned by the Babylonian Chachamim. And they ask this Aaron ben Meir to retract because they say you're in error and thousands of Jews will end up eating chametz on Pesach. Ben Meir says, not interested in your views, and he sends out his own letters to Jewish communities far and wide, telling them that Pesach is according to his calculation. And he has a, a reputation, a background, a yichus, and many of the Jews in many countries follow him. And the Jews in Bovel are now afraid of a split of a schism. What up until now? Who had the authority to decide? So... If we go all the way back, in other words, to times of the Besamekdash Temple times, the authority was in the hands of the Nasi in Eretz Yisrael, and he had authority over the entire Jewish people, including the diaspora. But after the destruction, as time passes, the conditions of the Jews of Eretz Yisrael and the level of knowledge and study was severely reduced, especially after the 4th century, as we mentioned. Whereas the community in Bavel became stronger and was the headquarters of Torah. The Chachamim in Bavel had the greatest scholars of the generation. And particularly at this time, when the dispute took place, Rav Sadyagon was living there. And he was head and shoulders above anybody else in that generation. But Ben Meir had the ambition to restore the old influence to Eretz Yisrael and believed he was enough of an authority to do so. So he ignores them, and they excommunicate him publicly. And they send letters to various parts of the Jewish world, warning the Jews against him. And this literally splits the Jews into two. That year, different towns, different communities observed Pesach on different days. So, you know, if you think whether you do or don't have kidneys or gebrocks is a fault line, <laughs> try this one. And... As we mentioned, when Rosh Hashanah rolls around, that 20-minute difference, so you've still got a two-day difference, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, completely different days. And Ben Meir reacts to this cherem by accusing Rav Sadyagon of causing the split. And they correspond in a quite insulting fashion. He compares Rav Sadyagon to Yerovam ben Nevot, who is the individual who split the Jewish people into two tribes and ten tribes, as we touched on last week. He talks about uh, Rav Sadyagon's origins as being sort of too humble, and his father, very Jewish fight, very acrimonious on both sides. Now, Ben Meir chose his timing because this Reish Gelusa, uh, David Ben Zakai, wasn't learned or particularly respected. And of the two academies in Surin Pumpadisa, one didn't have a head at the time and the other was in decline. So, you know, he was fighting a war at its, I suppose, uh, most acute moment. Didn't you say earlier that they had Trip Sadia gone? 
Yes, but because he was born in Egypt, they didn't make him the head of either of the two academies. So he is a scholar, but he's not an elected head. Mm. Eventually they did. In fact, he would eventually surf as heads in both. And he would be the first individual in almost a thousand years to be elected the head, not originating from Bovel. And eventually, you know, the, the fight will be over. Um, simply by force of knowledge of Sadiogon, he would write an entire safe on the matter. And after a few years, the literally a couple of years, the argument dies down. And we end up following the Babylonian calendar, even though there were still sages in Eretisrael. Now, the general assumption is that the war was won for good in 923-24 CE. But a good argument always has enough energy for at least one or two more rounds. Now, it's true that the same conditions that created the first dispute in 921 reoccur in 926, but we don't find any record of controversy then. And in fact, those same conditions would not reoccur in the calendar for 200 years until the year 1107. But around 15 years ago, Professor Sasha Stern, and I hope I'm pronouncing this name correctly, Pierre-Gabriel Mancuso. No, that's exactly how it's supposed to be said. Uh-huh, uh, discovered a calendar dated 25 years after the controversy, so 946, which didn't follow the Iraqi Babylonian one of Rapsadiogon, which means that a quarter of a century down the line, this is in southern Italy, the Jews had a different calendar. But could it be just because of the geographic distance that they, maybe the news just didn't get there? It's unlikely. There's trade, there's correspondence between the two areas, so uh, probably not. We also have a reference in 1094, Evyasar Hakoin becomes the Gaon of Eretz Yisrael in, uh, in Tzor, in Tyre, which is nowadays in Lebanon. And he records sort of the victory of him becoming elected. Uh, he had an Iraqi rival, but his rival was disqualified because only the Goenim of Eretz Yisrael possess the, the secrets of the proper method of calculating the calendar which means 180, 170 years later, he is still invoking the independent right of determining the calendar in Eretz Yisrael, seemingly indicating that the, the matter was not settled yet. And earlier in the 11th century, the whole correspondence between Rav Sadiogon and Aaron ben Meir was reprinted in Fustat in Cairo, with the aim of demonstrating that Rav Sadiogon had actually won back in 921, because in Fustet, there are two strong groups of Kehillus, the Eretzistral communities and the Babylonian communities. As an example, one of the differences between them is how often do they complete the reading of the Torah? Do they do so annually, as we do, following Bovel, or only once every three years? And... During the, the, the 1020s, the 1030s, it was a period of acute battle between these two congregations in Egypt and, in fact, in Syria as well. It was so acute that on the 9th of June, 1029, which is the 25th of Sivan, the Gorm of Yerushalayim, Shlomo ben Yehuda, travels down to Fustat 
in Egypt to excommunicate the entire Iraqi community in Fustet at a special ceremony in the cemetery. And now, the pretext on which he did so was that they had been shechting animals incorrectly, but the vitriol went much further as he writes to his colleague Ephraim ben Shmaria in a letter that we have. And he says that, you know, on the 25th, that Monday, we gathered in the cemetery in a large group and we brought out um, Sifri Torah and we excommunicated every active participant of, you know, these sinful um, acts and the authors of uh, vanity and lies and those who foment quarrels between brothers in order to achieve their desires. It's quite dramatic. Yeah, well, they, they tended to have the dramatic in, in writing, not just then, but even in, in later years. But nevertheless, they put an entire community in Hiram. So therefore, there was a power struggle between the two. And this is just one example, which may explain why the Iraqi community included in their communal pinkas a copy of the Sadia versus Ben Meir correspondence, because that shows that the Iraqis controlled the calendar for all Jews, even in Eretz Yisrael. And that is the last mention of the controversy. After the 12th century, not only any mention of it, virtually any memory of the, what you might call the great calendar controversy was gone and was only rediscovered in the late 19th century, primarily because of the Geniza. Although a possible reason for arguments to have come to an end is because rabbinic politics came to an end, not because they made up, but because after the Crusader conquest of Palestine, uh, the Jewish community of uh, Inushalayim was wiped out in 1099 and most Jews headed to Egypt. So there wasn't a community in Eretz Israel, really. And therefore, calendars were quite central to the rabbinic narrative. And in fact, next week, we'll look at how calendars were important during the Holocaust and look at a definition of the Holocaust itself, which we will release on Asara Batavis. And then we were taking a, uh, a break three to four weeks. Because of the aforementioned holidays. <laughs> uh, no, because I need to prepare some new material. Um, but it's conveniently arranged, I guess. Yeah. Also, I won't be in town. <laughs> One last thing. Some people may be aware that at the back of the tour in Hilchus Rosh you can find a 247-year cycle of the Jewish calendar, 19 times 13. But it isn't totally accurate because the real cycle is 700,000 years. Uh, I mean, almost 689,472 years. Um, I was going to say, yeah. Yes, exactly. That is an accurate Jewish calendar. So clearly it's not complicated at all, but it is a subject of literature to this very day. Wow. I think people might need a two to three week break after this one. <laughs> right. Heads will be spinning. Thank you very much, Robbie Hirsch, for a slightly more complicated but fascinating episode. It fascinates me always. You see a calendar in shul, much like many of the episodes we've done where we just see a day-to-day -day Jewish item and when you discover what's gone into it and how it was different over the years, it's just, uh, it blows the mind. Thank you very much. As usual, all questions, feedback, reviews, 
good, bad can be sent to jaylee podcast at jaylee.org.uk we look forward to hearing from you thank you Rabbi Hesh thank you